Easter. Amen. He is risen indeed. My name is James, and I, uh, along with Michael, have the privilege of, of pastoring here at Christ Church. On behalf of the staff, the elders and deacons, we want to welcome you all. I know many of you. I don't know all of you, but we're gathered here today to worship. We've gathered actually throughout the week. We, we came together on Thursday night to, to remember Jesus' betrayal, his arrest. We gathered on, on Friday night to, to remember Jesus' death on the cross, but this morning, we come to celebrate the rest of the story, the portion of the story that gives meaning to the whole. This morning, we come to celebrate the resurrection. I want to invite you to join me in John chapter 20. We've been, wait, we've been making our way through John's account of the gospel, and we come this morning to Chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, where we see the account of Jesus' bursting forth from the grave. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up and placed by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must arise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And, and she wept, as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, 
to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he has said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me? Father, this is, this is an awesome word, telling us of an awesome morning. When our awesome Savior rose from the grave, I pray as we, as we seek to, to understand, to unpack this word, that we would see Jesus. And so, Father, I humbly ask, I, I plead that I would decrease, that Jesus would increase, and that we would be blessed. His name we pray. Amen. On June 19, 1865, General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston, Texas, and issued General Order Number 3. The people of Texas are informed that, in, in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. Today has come to be known as Juneteenth. It's a day worthy of celebration, of remembrance. In the past couple of years, we've declared it a national holiday, appropriately so. But the interesting thing about Juneteenth, at least on that first Juneteenth, is that nothing actually changed. You see, the slaves had already legally been freed. They just didn't know it. January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which at the time was, was a largely symbolic, though meaningful, declaration. The issue was it, it freed the slaves in the Confederate states, but they remained in bondage until the Union Army could win the victory. That happened. Later, April 9th, 1865, when, when General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. But for two months, the slaves continued to labor in bondage, unaware that their freedom had been won until that fateful Juneteenth day, when they got the word of victory. It was all true. There was a celebration because for them in that word, in hearing that word, they were and forever would be free. Friday night, we celebrated our freedom over sin. If you're here with us, you heard us speak of the cry that that Jesus uttered from the cross when he said, it is finished. It was the victory cry when, when he won on the cross our freedom from sin. The battle was won that day. And yet the disciples continued to mourn. Unaware of the cosmic significance of what had occurred on the cross they continued in bondage until that glorious morning. That 
glorious morning, Jesus rose up and in his resurrection, he sealed not only the victory over sin, but the victory over the grave, over death itself. And the evidence that morning was not a general order proclaimed, but a risen Savior. The risen Savior whom we come this morning to worship. Holy Week is gloriously ripe with meaning. That's why we take the time to walk through the contours of the week. But we gather here to understand the fullness of its meaning in the resurrection. We want to see this morning the text, the deep theological truths that we find in the resurrection, deep theological truths that are simply twofold. First of those truths is validation. Jesus' rising up from the grave was his authenticating mark on everything that he said and did. All of his teaching, all of his miracles, All of his promises were validated when he defeated death, rising from the grave. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says as much, that the resurrection is the central article of the faith. He says there that if Christ has not been raised, that that our faith is futile. But, in fact, he has risen And in the resurrection, we have affirmation of the whole of his life and the whole of our faith. And is attested to us by the irrefutable truth of Scripture. The Bible is an ancient document unmatched in its authenticity. It's affirmed by uncountable scores of documents, but most Impressively, most truly, because it is the Word of God. In addition to the the Word that we read, that Word was affirmed by, by scores of eyewitnesses who were walking the earth when this when this word was written and being spread around the Mediterranean. Paul talked about the numbers of people who were still alive as they were preaching the gospel. And so in the book of Acts, as the disciples took this good news out, the content of their preaching was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They understood that in Jesus' resurrection, everything had changed. So as they preached new life, they preached new life. In Christ. The first deep theological truth of the resurrection is validation. But the second simple truth is that when Jesus was raised up from the dead, he was raised up as the first fruit of the resurrection. The first fruits of all who would be raised after him. He shows us the blessing of resurrection that believers in Christ will enjoy eternity. The meaning of Easter that we celebrate this morning, but our text, the text that I have read to you from John chapter 20, it unfolds that meaning in the context of story. We see a host of characters 
here in this story and we see their experience of these truths. Their experience shapes our experience. I want us to look to three characters. There are more than three. We're speaking of those besides Jesus, the main character, besides the, the angels. The three I want us to look to are Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. First, Mary Magdalene, who was she? You hear that name and wonder. There's much conjecture over her identity, how we place her with some of the other women that we find in the gospel accounts. Some think that she is the former prostitute. We don't know that for certain, but what we do know for certain is that Mary Magdalene had once been possessed by demons. Not one demon, seven. That's not just a little possessed. That is fully possessed. But, but Luke chapter 8 verse 2 tells us that Jesus healed her. She followed him. In John's account of the resurrection, she's the only woman mentioned. The, the other gospel accounts mention other women. But in verse 2, Mary alludes to the fact that she wasn't alone. She said, we do not know where they have laid him. That we alludes to the other women who likely would have been with her, but it wasn't uncommon for a group to be identified by their leader. But think about that for just a minute. What does it tell us? That a formerly demon-possessed woman is leading the band that finds the tomb empty. I'll tell you what it tells me. It tells me that Jesus welcomes and transforms our messy backgrounds. Mary, you had a particular experience of Jesus that morning. And we're going to continue to unpack her experience in a moment. We'll come back to her, but for a moment let me introduce the other two characters, those whom she had gone to tell. The text speaks of, of Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. We, we understand that other disciple to be John, the, the author of this gospel account. How did they experience the resurrection that morning? We don't have every detail. But the ones that we do have are telling Peter and John, they, they heard these, these mysterious words from Mary and, and they took off running. Now, why did they run? Was it, was it fear? Was, was it excitement? Was it, was it the possibility of it all? Could it be true? Whatever it was, they ran. Michael and I were talking about this passage this week. He, he, he pointed out a, an interesting little detail included here. John won the foot race. <laughs> Why would that be in there? Why would John tell us that, that he beat Peter? Maybe he's, he's ribbing Peter, putting it in the canon of Scripture for all time, that he was the faster of the two disciples. I don't know. But it adds authenticity to this account. These are real people with real emotions over a real event. And then there are more details. 
John got to the grave first, but he stopped there. Imagine him kind of bending over, trying to catch his breath. He's just been running to the grave, but, but he's breathing hard. His adrenaline is pumping, and, and you know that when your adrenaline is pumping, it heightens your awareness. So what does John see as he peeks into the tomb? He sees the grave cloth. And then Peter didn't stop, because Peter never stops. Peter runs into the tomb, and he takes a look around. He sees the grave cloth, and then he sees the face cloth folded over to the side. Again, why do we have these details? What do we do with all of that? Well, for one, it's just another example of the authenticity of the whole account as, as these men add the details that they saw as they're trying to process everything that's going on. Now Mary, at least at first, seemed to think that, that grave robbers had taken Jesus' body, something that was, was not unheard of in the day. But John and Peter, they, they seemed to grasp the fact that no, no robber would take the time to, to unwrap the body, much less fold the face cloth and, and place it over to the side. At least for John, verse 8 uh, tells us how those details came together. He saw and he believed. For John, this, this seeing brought everything together. Remember the point of validation that we talked about? Jesus had told the disciples what was going to happen beforehand, but they couldn't make all of that work in their rational minds. And yet something in this moment causes it all to come together for John. He saw the empty grave. He saw the grave closed. He believed. And he recorded it all for you and I so that we might believe. We've been spending a lot of time in John's gospel over the past almost two years. And in that time, we've, we've gone repeatedly to, to John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, because, because John is a good author. He tells us why he writes. And those two verses give his purpose. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. We've made our way through this gospel account. We've, we've highlighted seven signs, seven miracles that John presents to us, all given so that we might see the deity of Christ that we might believe in him. Those, those seven signs, they culminate in, in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but the whole of them, all seven, point to the miracle of miracles. That is Jesus and his raising up out of the grave. That is the miracle that gives meaning to all the rest. John saw simply an empty grave. He believed. And he knew that this changes everything. He shared his experience with us that we might also experience belief. 
And then he and Peter went back home. <laughs> There's something beautifully sweet in that. Because we go about life, even though that life has changed. But the story tells us about Mary next. She processed all of this very differently. Mary stayed distraught, weeping. You see, John and Peter, they were logical. They, they considered the evidence. They weighed it all. They were thinkers. Mary, she was a feeler. She grieved over the loss of Jesus. She was confused by it all. She goes on, the story tells us, to interact with these angels, but the text just blows by that because someone else was there that morning. Jesus. She turned. She saw him, but she didn't know who he was. How, how could that happen? What are we to make of, of that little detail? This week I heard an interview from, from a young man named Gordon Sargent. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a, he's a young college student from Birmingham, an amateur golfer, a good one at that. And he got invited to play this week at the Masters. And he told the story about how he first heard about this invitation, an invitation that he did not expect. He went to the mailbox, and he got a letter. And he opened this letter, and this letter purported to be from Augusta National, and it invited him to come and play in the Masters. That was the last thing he expected, and so what did he assume? His buddies were playing a joke on him. <laughs> because the unexpected is the last thing we expect. Mary, she had seen Jesus on the cross. She had seen and heard as he uttered that last cry. She had seen as they placed his body in the tomb. And here, in that morning, she saw him standing in front of her alive. But it was the last thing that she expected. She saw but didn't yet believe. Again, there's authenticity to the report. But then his voice and his question. Remember last week? Last week we talked about Jesus' question to Judas and to the band of soldiers. A question that I said he also asks of us. The question he asked to them, whom are you seeking? It's the same question he asks here of Mary. Mary, whom are you seeking? And at that point we're starting to get closer. She's seeking Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. Until finally, Jesus put an end to all of her grief with one simple, powerful word. Her name. Mary. Mary. He spoke to her, calling her out by name. And she experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ that morning. 
and his knowing her. Through her relationship. You see, Jesus knew her, and in his knowing her, she knew him. How beautiful is that? Many of us are here today, this morning, and our greatest desire, the greatest desire on our heart is to be known. To be called by name. Is that what you're here looking for? To be known? To be called by name? That was Mary's experience that first Easter morning. It's our experience as well. To be, to be known by Jesus relationally. What about what comes next? What about this not clinging? What is Jesus saying to Mary in that statement? Well, honestly, I think on one hand, Jesus is saying, hey, Mary, it's all right. We still got more time. On the other hand, Jesus is telling Mary, this earthly experience is not the end. You see, for Mary, for Peter and John, and for us, we will experience the resurrection and glory. Let me ask you, how does all this victory talk land with you? Easter is the victory. Easter is the time to celebrate Jesus' victory over the grave. Easter is a day of joyous celebration. But last week, I stood in this pulpit and talked to you about the battle. Last night, I visited one of our own families in the hospital as they are wrestling with very difficult news. How does all of this victory talk land with you when you consider the difficulties of this life? Some of us may be wanting to rub our necks dealing with the whiplash of it all. The truth is we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Jesus won the victory that morning, that Easter morning, and he has ushered in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that we experience now, though not yet fully, as we will experience it in its fullness and glory. In a lot of days, if we're honest, our experience of the kingdom feels like anything but victory. If that is you this morning, you're not sure about all of this victory talk, I want to point you back to Mary's experience of victory in verse 1. Mary's experience of victory in verse 1 is the same as her experience of victory in verse 16 when Jesus utters her name. So for her benefit, and for the disciples, and for us, Jesus continued after verse 16. To offer the words of hope that we find in verse 17. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. I am ascending to my God and your God. He sent Mary back to the disciples. A band of misfits that the King of Kings calls his brothers. And he says, I'm ascending 
I'm ascending to take my place in heavenly glory. And implied in that promise and made clear in the rest of Scripture is this. That where I am going, you will come too. It's what he said in John chapter 14. I go, but I will come back to take you with me. It's the second theological truth of the resurrection that we talked about. Jesus is the first fruit. And those who are in him will share in the resurrection, in glory. This is our hope. Jesus has won the victory. And in the fullness of time, those who are in Christ will share in all the spoils. Wherever you are this day, dancing in the streets or weeping in the midst of trial, consider that day in glory. When, like Mary, you will hear Jesus call you by name. That truth, that hope that is certain, it changes everything. One of, one of my favorite portraits, outworkings of the resurrection is the before and after picture of the disciples. Before the resurrection, the disciples were, were this band of misfits who were rivals with one another. And at the sight of danger, they ran in fear. After the resurrection, they served selflessly and suffered boldly. Acts chapter 4 verse 13 is one of my favorite pictures in all of scripture because these two... Peter and John were on trial. And they're being questioned about the teaching that they have been teaching and about some miracles they have done. But there, standing on trial, their questioners recognized a boldness in these two. And they said they recognized that they were simple, common, uneducated men. But they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. They had been with the resurrected Jesus. And it changed everything. It changed everything for them because they knew this is not all. There is a greater hope of glory. And that's true not just for the disciples. Not just for Mary Magdalene, but for us. Regardless of the relational struggles we find ourselves in, regardless of the news we are receiving from the doctor, there is joy and freedom because Jesus burst forth from the grave, defeating not only sin, but death. On that first Juneteenth, I imagine as the former slaves heard this word, they, they had to wrestle with it. They had to, they had to wrestle with what was its implication for them, they weren't sure. They had to work through those implications, and most of them probably continued to do that over the rest of their lives. But here is what they could not do. They could not go back to bondage because their freedom had been purchased by the shedding of blood. And now with the proclamation, they had clarity that day 
They simply needed to receive the word. They needed to believe the word that had been spoken to them and they needed to live in light of it. This morning we too are a mixture of slaves and former slaves held in bondage to sin. But Jesus purchased our freedom by the shedding of his blood on the cross. And on Easter morning, he rose from the grave in proclamation that the victory had been won, a victory that he shares with his own. So, beloved, hear this word. Receive this word. Believe this word and live in light of this word. That in Jesus' death, you are forgiven. In Jesus' death, you are made righteous. And in Jesus' life, you have life anew. This is the truth of the gospel. And it is yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Father, what... What a glorious truth of a glorious victory that you graciously share with us. I pray that you would give us ears to hear truth. A Savior who loves us, who died for us, who reconciled us to you. And give us some sense of what it means to live in light of that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.